Welcome to Spliss, a podcast from the speech, pronunciation, and listening interest section of TESOL International. Spliss provides a space for TESOL professionals to get familiar with the latest trends about all aspects of oral skills in English language teaching. Welcome to the Spliss Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Gordon, and today we have a very special guest, Dr. Amanda Hench. Dr. Amanda Hench is an assistant professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Pittsburgh, where she teaches courses in second language acquisition, pronunciation pedagogy, and language learning and technology. Her research examines second language speech development in and outside of the classroom, including the relationship between speech perception and production, pronunciation attitudes of classroom foreign language learners, and fluency development during study abroad. She has also investigated foreign language instructors' beliefs and classroom practices related to pronunciation. Her current research explores the relationship among intelligibility, accentedness, and comprehensibility in L2 Spanish. Dr. Hench is currently Associate Editor of the journal Applied Psycholinguistics. Dr. Hench, welcome to the Splice Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. And today we're going to talk about fluency, fluency development. And the first thing that I would like to ask you is uh, to give us a definition of fluency. What is fluency? Because there seems to be a confusion sometimes with teachers thinking that we're talking about some type of proficiency. Yeah, that is an excellent question and an excellent way to start. And if you pick up, you know, research articles on this, usually it's like the, in the first paragraph, we say, what are we talking about? Um, and I even saw this on my way to school today. There was a poster that said, you know, improve your English fluency will help you by teaching you idioms and improving your pronunciation. So yeah, there's basically two main, um, ideas. And one is this general idea of, of fluency, like you said, where it means proficiency. But typically in my work, when I talk about fluency, I'm talking about something much more narrow. Um, and there's been some really uh, useful ways of thinking about it. Um, and there's this book in 2010 um, that, that gave us a nice framework for thinking about it. So what is fluency? Well, this idea of um, fluidity or flow is definitely there, but we can actually think about three different kinds of fluency. So the first we think of is, is actually the, the most hidden. Um, and this is called cognitive, has been called cognitive fluency. And basically it's kind of the ease that we kind of, you know, gather words when we're trying to think of words or grammatical structures or phrases. It's, it's kind of how quickly we can do that when we're trying to pull our language together. Mm -hmm. um, so we call that cognitive fluency. And then the thing that we think about or that we actually measure in a lot of fluency work is um, what we call utterance fluency. And basically, that's just, you know, what are, how fast are you talking? Are you pausing? Are you repeating yourself, right? What are the kind of measurable things that we can take from your speech? Um, and we use those as 
representations of what we think is going on under the hood with your cognitive fluency, right? So if you're pausing for a really long time, maybe you're having trouble getting that, you know, really low frequency lexical item or something. Um, and a last thing that I wanted to bring up that's important in this definition, because um, I'll probably mention it later, is something we call perceived fluency. So you have to think about, you know, if if you're going to say that someone is is fluent or not, it's from what perspective, right? And so perceived fluency is basically what a listener kind of intuits about that cognitive fluency based on what they hear in the speech, right? So, so anyway, that's a long answer of saying it's not just general proficiency, but it's this fluidity or flow. And it's not just in the speech stream, but it's, it's, we're thinking about it in terms of how we actually um, plan and produce language. Mm-hmm. And you have a study uh, that you published in 2017 with Tracy Ventura, and you examine fluency development and the different elements of utterance fluency that improve quickly in an L2 environment and that speakers uh, even maintain after returning to their L1 environment. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, that is a really exciting kind of research project that I was able to be a part of. So I wanted to give a brief kind of background about what that whole thing is. Um, and then I'll tell you a little bit about what we found. Um, so the project is called LangSnap, <laughs> the Languages and Social Networks Abroad Project. Um, and basically, it was a longitudinal study designed to look at language development or change with a, a group of language learners who were studying abroad. Um, so these are British university students, and they're, if you're a languages major there, you're required to take your third year abroad. Um, so they designed this really exciting project where they basically, over six time points, um, met up with these students before they went abroad, three times while they were abroad for a year, and then two times after. And, you know, as you can imagine, one of the things they were interested in um, was fluency development. Because when we go study abroad, we get a lot of kind of naturalistic, rich exposure to input, or that's at least our expectation. Um, and we're getting to use and practice a lot more um, the language skills that we have. So the idea is, you know, um, that might be something interesting. And so I got brought onto the project to help look at um, how language, oral language skills developed. Um, and so what did we find? Well, the first thing we can think about, and I kind of alluded to this last time, last answer to the question is when we think about utterance fluency, it's not just one thing, but there's lots of things that we could measure that would feed into it. So the first is just, you know, how fast are you talking, right? I can talk really, really fast and like, or I can go slow, <laughs> right? Um, so we call that speed fluency. And there's also an aspect where we think of kind of breakdowns, right? So this is what we think of as uh, like pausing, whether it's just silence mm-hmm. um, or our uses of fillers like uh, and, mm, and er, right? So that we call that breakdown. 
Um, and then there's also a category of fluency, utterance fluency that's called repair. And so this is if we're repeating or changing what we're saying, maybe we correct something in our speech. Um, and that kind of, you know, three pronged approach, uh, to thinking about utterance fluency has been around for a while. So we basically looked at those aspects of utterance fluency with these learners um, over the six time points and tried to better understand, you know, what, what was going on. And what we found was really interesting. So um, for the repair stuff, uh, there's basically no change. So, you know, whether you're kind of repeating yourself or correcting or whatever, you know, that, that was pretty static um, over the course of the period of time. Speed, however, was something that improved like right away. Um, so right away when the, the students had been there for a couple months and it was, it was very evident in their speech that they were kind of being more automatic. Um, and that stuck around pretty much even once they came back. Um, in fact, we did a follow up study where we found about half of these people four years after the fact and tested them again and their speed rates were still there. Um, so it seemed like the, they had this quick kind of improvement. Um, and then that was kind of, it stuck around, but the breakdown stuff, the pausing stuff was a quite a bit more variable. Um, so we saw it took a little bit longer for their pausing habits to change. Um, and then once they came back, uh, things kind of were starting to go back to what they were. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about this, I'm sure, in a bit. But that got me a little bit more interested in kind of breakdown fluency and pausing in general. Um, but the big takeaway is that uh, different things change over time in different ways. And sometimes they don't change. Um, but the stuff that changed pretty heavily and early um, really stuck around. So those being, being abroad uh, helped and it continued to help those students. Mm -hmm. And usually more pauses indicate less fluency, but instead of pause fluency, uh, you investigated pause location. Could you explain to our listeners the reasons for doing so? Yeah, and this is kind of what I was getting at with the we got more interested in breakdown fluency thing. Um, is So generally speaking, uh, or to start out, folks were thinking like, yeah, like you said, if you pause more, it means that you're having breakdowns in fluency. It means you're less fluent or you're disfluent. So who the heck cares, you know, what, lo what location is. Um, but there was some really interesting uh, work or, and ideas that started to say, well, hold on a minute. <laughs> you know, all speakers pause, whether you're speaking your first language or a language that you're really, really proficient at, or it's your second language or your quite uh, low proficiency, everybody has to pause. And so instead of just thinking about the overall amount of time that that's happening, some clever folks thought, well, maybe it has more to do with where those pauses are happening in a sentence or utterance, right, in a phrase. So, you know, when we speak, we kind of speak in grammatical chunks. Um, we don't typically stop in between, you know, if we're going to talk about like the really pretty yellow bird, we don't usually stop after the word the, like the 
really pretty yellow bird, right? So when we speak, we speak in these grammatical chunks, especially when we're proficient speakers. Um, but some, yeah, like I said, some clever folks said, wait a minute, if you're a learner and if you're struggling and if you're having difficulty with uh, lexical access, right? Finding the right word or, or using the right kind of grammar form, um, maybe that's going to mean you'll pause in these unexpected places more often. Um, so I got really interested in looking at, is there a relationship between not just how much you're pausing or even how often you're pausing, but like where you're doing it? Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, in addition to pause location, the other aspect that you have examined in your studies is the type of task given to speakers. What do we currently know about the development of fluency and tasks? Yeah, so uh, actually, what's really interesting about this is, you know, us kind of researchers, we're sometimes we're in a lab and we're trying to really control all sorts of variables. Um, and so we design tasks to ask questions that might not be um, very naturalistic or something, right? And you can imagine that when you're trying to investigate fluency, right? uh, but you, you don't just want to go out in the wild with a reporter and see what happens, you want to try to control some variables, um, that what that means is that a lot of what we know about utterance fluency and its development comes from kind of quite controlled uh, examples of speech. So maybe, maybe I'm asking you to read. <laughs> that would be super controlled. Um, but maybe I give you some cartoon pictures and I ask you to tell me that story again. Or maybe I say, you know, speak for 45 seconds on whether you'd rather live in a big city or a small town, right? These kind of quite controlled tasks often delivered to a computer um, and not not very naturalistic. So even though that's some of the work that um, has contributed to the field, what we know, basically we know from what we call monologic tasks, which are basically instances where we've asked people like to speak. <laughs> um, and so we're starting to learn a lot more about dialogue, um, but then you can imagine it becomes even trickier to measure fluency. So even though this is what we're doing right now is a quite um, formal discussion, uh, there's still some pauses that happen that like, are they my pause or are they your pause? Like when I come to the end of a turn, um, there's still some, some questions that make measurement difficult. So I think I, I think I answered your question. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And you recently investigated these two aspects, task and fluency development in one of your studies. Could you tell our listeners what you studied and, and what you found? Yeah. So given the, um, given what I was saying earlier about the fact that a lot of what we know comes from these monologic tasks, um, I, this LangSnap uh, project that I was talking about, uh, we happen to develop what's called a corpus, which is like a collection of texts. And in this case, it's a collection of speech samples. Mm -hmm. And we had um, two kind of quite different speaking tasks that we had given our learners. One was this picture type story that I'm talking about where uh, they looked at it like some cartoons and retold the story. 
Um, but another was basically an interview that we had with them where we were asking them questions, you know, like about their time abroad or, you know, something that they learned in school. Or we were like literally trying to better understand what their experiences were like. Um, so I got to thinking, hey, we have a lot of research that does work with these picture tasks. And we have that. So we can look at that. Um, we have less with the same, you know, where we can compare the same learners in like a more naturalistic type uh, context. Mm -hmm. And we have that too. <laughs> and we had it, uh, like I said, over time, right? We're six period, six points in time. And really kind of interestingly, something we haven't talked about um, is we had this data for these learners in both their first language, which happened to be English, um, but also their second language, which in some cases was French, in some cases was Spanish. So we could basically test whether when fluency was being um, developed or impacted by task, you know, was this something that was just about their speaking style generally, right? Because we had both their first and second language. Or was it something that seemed kind of unique to their um, second language development? Is that, did it have something more to do with their actual ability in the second language? And so it's kind of a complicated design, complicated question. But, but basically, the really important thing that I think that I uh, found is that if we only considered those picture stories, right? Um, and this was looking at this uh, pausing location, right? So the important variable, we call it mid-clause pause location. It basically means pausing in the middle of one of these chunks, right? If we look at that only for this picture story, what we see is that between leaving and being abroad, let me, let me say that in a different way. If we only look at the mid-clause pausing and we consider the second language of the speaker, um, they get better, but they never get as good as they are in their first language. So they improve while studying abroad, but they still kind of fall short, let's say, of where they're at with their second language on this type of task, this picture task. However, <laughs> If we look at these interviews, at these conversations, what we see is that we see actually a variety of different patterns, but importantly, we see that, that they improve and they get as good as they are in their first language. And so what's important to consider is that depending on the task you're being asked to perform, um, and there's lots of different reasons why this might be, but depending on the task you're being asked to perform and how we measure uh, your fluency, like sometimes it seems like you aren't that great and sometimes it seems like you are. So I think for me, the last point that makes this really important is that when you seem to be falling short is when we're asking you to do these kind of monologic picture storytelling type tasks, right? So when we put you into these really controlled environments, um, either you as a learner struggle a bit, or maybe you're just really good in your first language, depending on how you want to think about that comparison. Um, but I like to think about 
a positive aspect, which is, but when we actually look at like the thing that you are supposed to be doing with your language, which is communicating with people, like it turns out that we can't tell the difference, you know, and these are relatively proficient speakers. But what I'm trying to say is like, depending on how we measure how you're doing, you know, we can show that you're actually accomplishing a lot in your second language. That's very interesting. So given the way a speaking task affects mid-class silent pausing, what are some pedagogical recommendations that teachers could implement in their classes to help learners in fluency development? Yeah, that's always like the question, right? So, okay, we've, we've got all this information. What do we do with it? Um, I think there's a, a variety of, of takeaways from this. So first of all, from my perspective as a, a teacher, it's, well, depending on the thing I ask you to do, you're going to perform differently. So I want to make sure that I give you a variety of um, contexts. I don't only want to ask you to take home as homework, retelling picture stories into your computer, right? I want to also give you opportunities for interacting um, with your classmates or maybe in group settings versus dialogue, like just two people settings. I, I basically want to... Um, give you a variety of types of tasks because I know that they're going to impact, um, they'll allow you to practice in different ways. Um, that being said, I still do want to give you that, that picture story type thing um, because it is, it does seem difficult, right? So I want to give you opportunities to try to practice and automatize some of the knowledge that you already have. So I want to take class space, not just for learning new information, but also having an opportunity to, to practice um, existing information that you have, existing knowledge that you have. Um, and finally, I think, you know, it may sound a little bit obscure or something, but talking to students about this reality that where we pause can really have uh, an impact on our listeners and how they judge our fluency. Um, and I didn't mention this, but if we go way back to this idea of perceived fluency, um, there's been some really interesting work that others have done that has demonstrated, you know, if I manipulate where pauses happen in speech and I play it to people, if it's in the middle of these clauses, those speakers are going to be rated as less fluent, right? And so just having an awareness of this for students, I think, can be useful. Um, there's a lot of really good pronunciation work, thinking about talking in these chunks, mm -hmm. right? So trying to get students used to, to talking in these message unit chunks or thought group chunks um, and, and doing so with that type of understanding that pausing in the middle of those chunks is uh, much more problematic than pausing a little bit more in between those chunks, right? Um, and then the last thing I would say as well is given that, right, so helping our students by providing them or raising their awareness to, you know, what are some ways we can buy time? So if we need to buy time um, in the boundaries of chunks, you know, how can we do that? What are some ways that when we do that, our listeners you know, don't perceive that as being really problematic. That's very interesting. Thank you, Dr. Hench, for sharing your expertise with the Splice podcast listeners. Uh, you can learn more about fluency development in Dr. Hench's late, latest article, which is published in Studies in Second Language Acquisition, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Thank you. Remember to subscribe to the Splice podcast through your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. This has been a presentation of Splice, a podcast from the speech, pronunciation, and listening interest section of TESOL International. Please remember to subscribe to Splice through your favorite podcast listening platform. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.